Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning, good afternoon. Um, I'm speaking today with Jeff Gobo uh, in New Mexico. And the conversation, I believe, is going to mostly uh, focus around soil health and in a constructive and applied kind of sense. Um, but of course, we will, we will follow any kind of tangents that come along and seem either uh, pertinent or fascinating. Uh, so without further ado, Jeff, welcome. I'm really happy to be speaking with you today. Thank you. Yeah, it's an honor. I do appreciate it. One of the, th one of the reasons I was so interested in speaking with you is because you do have this company called About Listening. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it just struck me instantly in terms of the whole conversation around uh, regenerative agriculture, regenerative communities, regenerative practices uh, across the board. We do an awful lot more talking, mm -hmm. I think, as a movement than we do listening. Mm -hmm. So that, that just seemed like, yeah, I think this is an angle we, we really ought to delve into a bit. Um, can You've done a lot of, I mean, I looked through a couple of the websites in your profile, um, and of course we've had a couple conversations already, and you have done a lot for a long time in a way that has a natural kind of evolution towards what you're working on now with soil health and communication. Um, could you talk a bit about how you got on that path, what, um, maybe some high points of it. And I'm particularly interested since this is a series um, that I hope will motivate listeners to find in themselves and in their lives ways to dive in as well. I am, I'm interested in, in what motivated you to, to focus on this. Great. Well, thank you, Eric. I sure appreciate the opportunity. Um, well, I graduated in college, my, my bachelor's in 1980 in natural resources and um, grew up, my dad was a professor in the department, so I grew up in natural resources. Um, my first job was with the U U.S. Department of Agriculture, and I worked for the what was called the Soil Conservation Service at that time, and our charge was to help farmers adopt conservation to take care of the soil and the water. And... Um, and I was doing that 
very passionately. And, and I also uh, really cared about the farmers and ranchers that I was working with. And, um, and I was just noticing how slow conservation was being adopted. Um, and not because of ill intent, just for some reasons. And I wanted to understand why. And I also felt a, an obligation for the well-being of farmers and ranchers. And so not only um, that the land was taken care of, but also that their families and the, the economy was being taken care of for them. And it seemed like they were sort of opposites. And um, so I, I went to learn more about the economic side. Um, and as I ventured into that, I realized that it's actually something even deeper, which is us as human beings. It's our own perception of the world. and. Um, and through the course of my work, I, I have learned that it's, to me, I believe it's, it's our fears, whether they're real or imagined, most of them are imagined, or it's um, our, well, I'd say, and it's our limiting beliefs. It's the way we've structured the way the world, we think the world is. And in reality, it often is not that way. And so how do you deconstruct the belief structure and reconstruct, you know, in a way that's sustaining or regenerative, um, you know, as you move along and how do you deal with those fears? And so that's what I, um, I left the uh, Soil Conservation Service after about six years. And I did have the opportunity to work with a fellow named Alan Savory that a lot of people know about in the regenerative movement. And, um, and I like, there's two things that really stood out with his work. One was um, the decision-making framework that's focused on focuses on holism. So basically looking at social, social, cultural and economic and ecologic values simultaneously. And that was very important. So that made a lot of sense to me that we've got to make sure all of those are, are satisfied. And then the other area was um, the relationship of the grazing ungulate and the predator in terms of ecologic health on a lot of the landscape of the earth. And um, I had the opportunity, I was a little frustrated with um, the missing human development skills with that approach. And so I um, was able to work with a, uh, a, ran a family out of Texas that had um, three ranches in Texas and one in Hawaii. And I was able to practice what I had learned from uh, from Alan and, and my own work. And we were able to make absolutely remarkable changes on those places in a very, very fast time. And that the changes were ecological. And so, um, you know, we had, for instance, um, Hawaiian uh, cowboys on, one, on the ranch I was working with and they were unionized. And we had um, Hawaiian activists that were given the ranch a really hard time because of the way we managed. And within a very, very short period of time, like six months, we turned all that around. And it was very respectful and very um, in, in, uh, really enhanced our work. And, and at the same time, we went from losing an amazing amount of money to actually breaking even within a year's time. And, uh, and again, it was all about our core beliefs, you know, how we approached, you know, finances, the land, people. And it was all about, you know, dealing with our fears and addressing our fears. So that sort of got me really started early. Um, it gave me a uh, real confidence in the 1980s 
that land could be better, people could be better, economics could be better. I mean, it was like, I know we can do this because I did it, you know, and uh, that started my journey of, you know, moving further to figure out more of this work. Yeah. I'm curious, like, what were some of those fears that turned out to be unfounded on those projects? Well, I, I remember the manager on the ranch, two of the ranches, well, one, the first one in Texas was if you put um, too many cows with calves together, uh, they would develop scours and the calves would die. Um, and so- and, and for those who aren't ranchers, scours is basically cow diarrhea, right? Yes, that's yeah. exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what, um, but what wasn't seen was that when you put them together, you have more pastures out there available, um, which means you've got more fresh pastures, pastures that are restoring themselves. And so you're, you're actually, you've got them together, but you're moving the fresh feed every day. So it's clean every day. You're moving to a cleaner pasture. And so, um, so the, the scours issues wasn't a problem, but there was the belief that my God, if we do this, we're going to die. Everybody's going to die. And, uh, but it got healthier. Another belief was that, um, well, um, fear was that, um, um, I guess it'd be more of the belief side, but I'm sure there was fears associated with it. Um, probably credibility for one thing. Um, but the belief was that we couldn't make more than lose half a million or 50,000, hundred thousand a year. And within a year, we're making 150,000, you know, you know, and a profit on particularly that case. Um, the, the, the activists, um, the Hawaiian activists, um, there is a fear about them getting on the land and not respecting the ranch, which was proven out. What's interesting is that our fears typically become self-fulfilling prophecies. We kind of actually make them happen. And so that was the way it was when I got there was, you know, that there was a lot of vandalism and things like that. When I listened to the local people and found out that their two concerns for the ranch boiled down to one was we were doing a lot of spraying on the land um, and putting a lot of chemicals on the land. And they were worried about their food and their water that was coming off the ranch. And um, that was one of their big fears. And the other big fear for the activists was, well, it was, it was honoring who they were. Um, the King of, Eng of Hawaii, when the land was transferred to the U S um, sovereignty, um, you know, requested or, or agreed, you know, there was seemed to be an agreement that the um, Hawaiian people would have access to the mountain, Malka, and to the ocean, to Makai. And we were locking them out and we were in a very high tourist traffic area. So, you know, we also didn't want tourists running all over the place. But um, with those two things, with the chemical piece, you know, our ranch was losing money. And so we couldn't really afford it anyway, but we were doing it because that was the thing you do. And the other thing is you were spraying brush and, and treating animals for insect problems and parasite problems. But when we started moving the animals like a herd of bison across the landscape, the land responded remarkably and we stopped having brush problems and we stopped having um, parasite problems. And um, so we didn't need the chemicals to do that, to treat that. So we solved 
that problem, you know, that was important to them. And then the other problem about the access, um, we were, we, we were, it was connected because we were able to show that by moving the animals around and controlling where the animals were, which made the grasses and, and all the other plants more viable, the ground was covered, water would absorb instead of run off, you know, all these great benefits, insect problems would dissipate. Um, when we, but we, but it required that the animals stayed in a bunch and we moved them across the landscape, which meant that we had to have the fence, the integrity of fences maintained and gates uh, opened or closed as we, as we put them, you know, on the management of the ranch. So we worked it out with the um, locals to, to allow them to have 24 seven access to the mountain and to the Mackay and, and, and Malka, to the ocean and to the mountains. We, we created the opportunity for them to um, understand what we needed to do there and they respected it. It was phenomenal. And so within actually six months of, of addressing the issue and then doing something about it, the Hawaiian people <laughs> came to us and said, you know, we've been complaining for decades about how you're managing and been really angry with you. Um, and just in these very few months, you've turned your land around so much that we want to learn what you've done because you're out doing what we, we never imagined you could do things this well, anybody could. And so they asked us if we would teach us, teach them how to do this work. And, and because of the troubles that the Hawaiian team that I had, the Cowboys had gone through all these years, I said, I won't teach you, but I'll have my Cowboys teach you. And so <laughs> it was wonderful. So yeah, so that that um, would be some examples, I guess, of the fears and the challenges. Is you know, the Hawaiian people did fantastic with honoring the integrity of the ranch, and um, you know, but but we had a fear that we couldn't, you know, we could, it wouldn't work, and it did, you know. So yeah. So it, it was. I mean, you, you talked about the the different activists. Were they primarily uh, Hawaiian sovereignty activists? Uh, yeah, they would have, that would be that direction with that, I would say for, for most of them. Um, I think 92% of the school my son went to had um, Polynesian um, blood. So it was very high. It was a very um, remote part of Maui and um, Han, Hana was the community. And uh, so, yeah, so it, I would say that would be, which, you know, it, makes a lot of sense to me so yeah and the king the king that you mentioned that was kamehameha yes mm -hmm. yeah my, my, my hawaiian history isn't so sharp as i'd like it to be but yeah i remember some of some, reading some of some of some of the stuff he was he was trying to do um as the colonists were yeah. bombing in there um that touches on another point uh i, I just want to kind of note that because I, I think maybe we'll come back to it in a little while but which yeah. is that that interaction with the, the traditional communities that has yeah. seems to be um it's a refrain that that you know as i look through the work and that you've been doing it it comes up up, up and again and, and and i feel like it's so important but i want to give that its own little time to expand um so at this moment if you're if you're willing for it um we had talked a little bit about your work with the Healthy Soil Act in New Mexico, and I think that's yeah. a really interesting uh, project and an and example of what can be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you expand on that a bit. Sure. Um, let's see. I guess um, you know I've I've been seeing the power of what the soil can do for our, our for our world, 
Um, obviously, I started with soil with Soil Conservation Service back in 1980, and um, and and as we've become wiser, more understanding in the Western world to some extent, um, we've realized how important not only just the chemistry and the structure of the soil is, but also the the, the biology of the soil. And that's what we're learning a lot about um, now, and um, how critical that is for our well-being. And so um, I bought a little farm in New Mexico in 19, let's see, or 2014 or 15, six years ago. And I, um, and then that made me eligible to join a conservation district, um, which is a local group. Um, it's a really cool government structure, I think, here in the U.S., which is um, where you have local people that have invited the federal support to come in and help take care of conservation and take care of the land and whatnot, you know, work in partnership. And it's an outgrowth of our dust bowl that we had here in the United States back in the 1930s. Um, and there's over 3000 conservation districts. And I think it's just such a cool model. And I've worked around conservation districts for a long time. So there was an open position on the local conservation district board. And so I, um, offered to, to join and, and they um, brought me on and then I ran for the office when it opened, you know, when it was the election cycle and got uh, elected. Anyway, um, at the same time, I also was, uh, went to, uh, it, I was involved with a rural network of uh, organizations here in the United States. And we happened to meet in Washington, DC. And one of the themes of that conference was the climate issues and soil health. And so, um, and there was some great work that was being done like in Minnesota and of course, all over the country. I was involved with a, uh, a Kellogg project back in the mid nineties called the Integrated Food and Farming Systems. And it was really to help facilitate rapid expansion of this work, particularly the rapid expansion in the university and college world. So that, um, that there was more education coming out that was focused on sustainability organic and ultimately regenerative um, where a lot of us are now thinking. And um, so, um, and then also at that same time, I had the opportunity to um, go to Paris for the climate talks and was involved in a panel over there and, and um, talking about uh, the human side of the climate issue that we have. Anyway, so in that, um, there is some, uh, some great, um, concepts about you know packaged together that i thought you know let me bring it back and i and i took it to the uh the conservation districts here as a state uh, the association to endorse it as a resolution and um and we're uh, we're partisan or we're a, a partisan state pretty divided between maroon urban and red and blue democrats and republicans in this in this state and, and so uh, I was politely suggested to, to rescind my um, climate uh, approach that was focusing on soil health. And so I, I didn't move it forward and, at their suggestion, but I kept it on my mind. And then later that year, I, I um, was doing some assessment of all the resolutions we have in the state and we're called soil and water conservation districts. But we had five 
uh, resolutions about water in the state and about taking care of water, we had nothing as a soil conservation, soil water conservation district for uh, soils. And I said, my God, you know. And so I, I repackaged what we did, brought it back two years later as a soil health um, resolution, and it got passed unanimously. And uh, it was the same concept. It just, we changed the word. We took climate out and uh, just said, let's take care of the soil. And everybody agreed to that. So then um, uh, the next year we were developing, the, you know, there was a movement to, to form this concept of the soil health for the state. And um, so I was involved with a small team in terms of designing this. And because of the lessons I learned earlier, um, and, you know, the lessons over life, you know, I was looking at how do we address systemic change using policy that's based on state government? You know, what can the state do to affect it? Of course, our champions, and this was a belief change, was our champions are farmers and ranchers. They're farmers, ranchers, gardeners, and foresters are the only ones who touch the soil, you know, on a daily basis. They're the ones that make the earth better or worse, you know. And so let's make them our champions and let's help them do their job. So help them however they need to be able to take care of our earth for all of us. And so that was one of the major backbones of the legislation was farmers are, are critical. Our, their ranchers are critical. Let's help them be successful with this legislation. And so that was the attitude that we approached this with. And of course, there was skepticism because in the ranchers and farmers have been attacked a lot over the years. But um, it was the right thing to do, um, to focus on that. It's the only thing you can do. They're the only people that can change the earth. And so, so anyway, that we built the legislation focusing on that. We, um, we also used the five principles of soil health as the basis for decision-making, not practices. Um, practices are, are how-tos. And it's like, let a farmer figure that out. They're pretty darn smart. Um, Let's focus on what, what it is we want to see as outcomes, like covering our soils, like having biodiversity, like having um, living root through the year so you're feeding the soil, um, how, you know, uh, incorporating grazing animals in the, in the equation and, and earthworms and beavers. And so, um, which is, <laughs> gets back to that biodiversity, but it puts a little emphasis on the importance of that. So, so we built principles into the... Um, um, in the legislation. And anyway, we got it passed um, pretty strongly by 100% consensus through through the, that, that winter period. Um, really, we looked, we're thinking a lot about systemic issues. Um, so it's automatic that when you go farm, you automatically make the land better, you know, instead of now when you go farm, you tend to, you know, with, with the systems that we have, you tend to make the land worse. So how do we facilitate an environment that makes the land better? So that's what we were working to do. Yeah. Can you say something about the New Mexico water budget, not in terms of cash, but in terms of in and out of water supply? Yeah, yeah. So other things that's, you know, we're in a desert here in New Mexico, pretty much the whole state and uh, don't get a lot of rain. And, um, and we're and the projections with climate change is that we're going to be hotter and drier. So we're already dry. So how can you get drier than dry? Um, so um, 
one of the things that I've learned about and, and it's been very well backed up and documented is that as your soil improves, the ability to, to not only, well, to, to increase infiltration, so you get more water going in the ground, and then water retention increases too, so you hold more water. And um, what I found in my work to understand water security in here in the desert was that there's an evaporation chart for the country. And 90, in my area where I live here, 90 to 100% of our water evaporates right into the sky massive amount of water. So like, you know, Eric and I were talking a little bit earlier, it's like I give you a $10 bill, you know, or 10 inches of rain, and then I take it right back from you. I don't let you spend it. And I say, go ahead and live your life. That's pretty tough. And that's what most of the people today are living with is that they don't, they get water, but it goes back in the atmosphere. So it's like they have nothing. And so if we can increase water infiltration and water retention, and we can, um, we, we have the potential of, you know, I'll give you 10 inches of water, a $10 bill, and you get to keep three three of it, you know, three inches or $3 and whatnot. And then you can do something with that. And uh, we have a rancher um, not far from here that uh, has documented that, that by changing the way he grazed the cattle instead of all over the place all the time, he's put them in and started moving them across the land like a herd of buffalo or, or antelope. And what's happened is that his water infiltration has increased by 33% over a very short period of time, about 10 years. And that has allowed him to um, double his forage production off the land because there's more water there because he's managed his land differently. So it's not like he was irrigating it because, it, you know, he just used what came to the earth and kept it. And he managed it. He took care of it. And the other thing that's really exciting for us here in the desert because um, we're pumping, I think 85% of our water in the state is pumped from the ground. And so our groundwaters are dropping groundwater. Um, and, and so his wells documented have up, come up one to two feet since he's been doing this work. So not only has he grown more vegetation because he's increased more water in the ground, but some of that water is going down and recharging the groundwater and bringing that back up. So that's the opportunity. And we could do that. We got, you know, his, his is 7,000 acres. We have 78 million acres in the state. What if you could do that all over the state of New Mexico, which we can, but it gets back to the fears and the beliefs that people have about how you manage animals, how you manage land, how you, um, how you manage finances, you know, all those kinds of things. So, yeah. We're going to take a break now, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind & Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise, where we are speaking today with Jeff Goebbels from New Mexico, soil activist and communication facilitator from About Listening. Can't wait to get back into this one. 
the other thing that we we had touched on before we hit the record button was the uh, farm and ranch economy itself and, and, and also the flows in and out. That Could you uh, go into that a little bit also? Yeah. Um, if you want um, quite a bit of depth on it, too, there's a great book by um, Wendell Berry and Wes Jackson called Meeting the Expectations of the Land. And it's from 1984, I believe. Yeah, and Amory Levins has got a beautiful essay in there that talks about what happened. Um, and he's relating it to energy, but it's the same thing. Energy and money are very connected. Um, and so, um, and and he talks about this trend and this trend, what's happened is back around World War II and before, there was relatively a, a strong parallel between what a farmer made percentage-wise of the price of food and what the price of food was. And so, and it was pretty high. It was, you know, up like around 75 cents on the dollar at one time. Um, after World War II, there was a strong downward trend um, in terms of um, net farm income and a continuing upward trend for price of food. And so there's this huge gap. And now the farmers make about eight cents on the dollar. Um, we did an economic study here with our soil health work about a year ago, and we learned that in 2017, 70% of our farmers lost money on their farm. 70% of our farmers lost money on the farm. Why do you farm? You know, it's it, it's crazy. But so anyway, what what's interesting and what's pointed out in the book, um, Meeting the Expectations on the Land, is that um, at World War II, you know, the world was bombed out, you know, factories were gone, you know, and um, except for, you know, in the United States. And so we had, you know, in a few places around the world. Anyway, we had, um, you know, these factories gainfully, you know, a lot of people employed there and our supply or, you know, the, the demand stopped, the war was over. And so tanks, what do you do with tanks? What do you do with fertilizers or munitions? What do you do with biocides, petrochemicals? And um, so there was a, a turn toward taking, you know, the production, the high level production that was going towards tanks to turn it into caterpillar tractors for farmers, take um, munitions and uh, turn it to fertilizer, take bio, uh, petrochemicals and go to biocides and, and fossil fuel running the uh, equipment. And so, um, that's what this this downward trend happened was uh, at that turning point. And so anyway, um, we also in this economic study that we did, we, we asked um, how much money um, is spent on those those things, which tend to actually harm soil microbes. You fertilize, you fertilize, you hurt the soil microbes. Um, you um, uh, do biocides, you hurt the soil microbes, you till, you know, put oxygen in the ground and you burn up that carbon carbon in the soil and you hurt soil microbes. So um, we spend in this state, which is a, a, a more impoverished state for, you know, for um, the United States per capita. And we spend um, about half a billion dollars a year buying stuff from outside the state. You know, this money leaves um, to bring in stuff that hurts the land. And that's about half of that 
that difference between, you know, with growing food is that. So there's a huge opportunity to relook. It's not like, I mean, I have farmers tell me, well, they don't have any money left to do change. And it's like, well, you spend a whole bunch of money every year, you know, why not relook at how you're spending that money, reallocate it. And all my life's experiences, I've seen great abundance of money and, and a lot of poverty at the same time. And it has a lot to do with how you look at the money. It goes back to that branch in Hawaii. We were losing three quarters of a million dollars a year. And within a year's time, we were breaking even on that ranch. And it was the belief systems about the money that we had. It's how do we use it differently to create the outcomes we want. And so that's the opportunity. And it's, it's, it's huge. And, um, it's, and, and that's not even, that's just talking about the input costs, which is about half. The others is marketing and distribution. Could we, like our state, we import 95% of our food from out of state. You know, we could grow food here. We do grow food here. 97% of our food leaves the state and, um, it, it's crazy making. So it's, you know, so we have abundance, you know, um, it's just the reallocation. It's how do we use that to be able to get what we want, what we want. And it's interesting that also in that study, we showed that um, if every New Mexican would spend $5 a week on growing, buying local food, we would add to the state economy, starting at the farmers and ranchers, um, $600 million a year, over half a billion more dollars a year of revenue internally within our state by buying our own food, you know? And so there's these huge opportunities and a lot of it's just this allocation piece and how we look at how the process of what we do. So, yeah. So I've been pretty involved with that, developing that. Yeah, Eric. I mean, that last bit, that really sounds like the guts of a, a good campaign, a good ad campaign, you know, for, yeah. for like, let's, let's make New Mexico for New Mexican yeah future or something like that you know um i'm curious and, and i'm going to use this curiosity to segue a little bit um because i do want to get into the it, working with traditional uh, cultures yeah and be able to give it enough time to really dig into it a bit um so i'm curious how if or how um that work with the soils act the Healthy Soils Act might have um, engaged with the local uh, tribal communities in New Mexico. Oh, yeah. And I'm also really curious, because it's quite topical right now, about um, is there a sense, particularly among, among the soil practitioners and the ranchers, because I know there is among the tribes, um, of hope around uh, Representative Deb Halland uh, being nominated to the Department of the Interior. Yeah. Um, because, well, because of course, they, they oversee, don't they, all the ranch land? Yeah, I well, a lot. Um, yeah, I'm I, um, very excited about her. And um, she even, um, I've been working with a group called the Healthy Soil Working Group here in New Mexico for, uh, out, well, through the legislative process and then up till probably this fall. And anyway, this fall, we actually had... Um, Deb Halen, um, uh, beyond what we call soil stories, which is different people that are doing cool things, um, whether, you know, and we've worked with indigenous people, um, uh, the Hispanic community, um, women, um, white males. Um, and we had Deb on there to talk about, you know, her work with soil health. And so, um, it's, it's a great, great opportunity. And like you're saying, um, 
the Department of Interior um, it, that she would be secretary of under in the Biden cabinet um, is the Bureau of Land Management lands, which is a lot of the grazing lands in the West. And then also it's the Bureau of Indian Affairs land, you know, so it's the tribal lands all over the country that the, the trust responsibility, the relationship there. So um, um, I, I, I haven't, because of where I'm focusing right now, I haven't really put a lot of my finger on the pulse in terms of the enthusiasm. Definitely the tribes are very, very enthusiastic. I mean, you know, that it's, it's really important. Um, it's difficult to manage something if you don't understand it, if you don't have the value of context of it. And so it's really great to see a tribal leader like she is, she's got an incredible value system, um, becoming the leader, you know, uh, you know, potential leader at the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And then of course the Bureau of Land Management would be amazing. So, yeah, so it's, 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 I'm excited about it. It's a great piece. And I hope, and I think it will, because I think she's seen as very level-headed um, in our partisan uh, world that we have today. So I mean, I'm hopeful for things. If she gets there and she's, she's been pushing a, a, a concept of 30-30, which is 30% of public lands protected by uh, 2030 is the initiative. And, um, and I pointed out in our, when she was talking on the soil health uh, series, um, I said, you know, the UN says we need to have hundred percent by 2030 or sooner, or maybe 20, 30 years ago, but um, we really need to actually accelerate that instead of 30%, let's have it be a hundred percent in the next um, nine years. And um, so that, that, and, in the consensus work that I do, the conflict resolution work through consensus, I'm always pushing people to do what seems to be impossible. And um, and it's remarkable when you do that, what people can do. And uh, when you push people to do the impossible, they can do it. And so 100% in, in nine years is not out of the question at all. So, yeah. I mean, why would you uh, want to keep doing things that hurt your soil cost you a lot of money, you know, make you go bankrupt or, or broke, um, you know, lose species that are going to be absolutely critical for our future, um, you know, not have the water, you know, why would you do that? You know, so, I mean, so it's a, a no brainer. It's just, you know, helping people change, address their fears and their belief systems. Yeah. And I think also your work, um, you know, around uh, kind of systemic yeah, uh, perspectives on this is going to help that because because it strikes me that yeah I mean I've always thought it was really ludicrous the you know the way we destroy things or or um, or waste them yeah but it's so much easier to do that if you don't see the connections yeah you know yeah. we tend to take them as a a, a case by case opportunity or or, yeah. or compulsion you know and 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 we don't stick it together. So yeah. I, th I think that's really important. Could you say a bit more of, about some of your work with um, other traditional communities and facilitating communication and yeah. um, <clears throat> how that, how that also how, maybe how that opened up for you in the first place? Yeah. And then some of the things you've learned. Yeah, good. Um, well, well, first just building on what you just said it is a really important thought is that, you know, you get these people that have lived for thousands of years on site and their language is built on the local ecology, the local landscape. And so 
those languages are treasures. I mean, science, you know, we use English, which comes from England, you know, and, and what, what does that language, which is made up of a lot of other languages, but what does it have to do with understanding the ecology of this area? you know, here in, in New Mexico or up in Washington state or in Cambodia, you know, or, or, you know, Zimbabwe, you know, what does that language, the English language have to do to help you learn and describe things that people have been experiencing and seeing for tens, you know, thousands and thousands of years, if not, and definitely longer. And so that's something that, that has been sort of a side effect, you know, or, or uh, something I've learned since working with Indigenous people is how important saving Indigenous languages are for us from a science point of view, because they can see things. When I was working with the Colville tribe in uh, north central Washington state, um, I took a Salish language class. And in the science world, we had two species of service berry identified, which is a, a bush that has berries on it that people eat and stuff. Two, two species that grows in the wild, they, we have two species identified. The language has seven species identified. What is it they see that we don't see? And, you know, like, of course, we hear about the Eskimos and their descriptions of snow. We have one word for snow. They have four, 40 to 50 words for snow. You know, that tells us something, you know. The Navajo um, cycles of the seasons, you know, they don't use... December and January and those language, those words. I mean, what do those words mean? They use words that describe what's going on that time of the year, you know? So there's a, there's a very strong connection with the year. So, um, you know, it was interesting. I was working with uh, um, one of the Pueblos here that works with teaching the languages for, for their children and bringing the, the languages back. And, um, and in the course of that, they were having nine month school years, like is traditional, you know, nowadays, conventional, I should say. And the thing is, is that they're trying to teach a language that includes descriptions of the earth and they're missing the summer months because the kids are out of school. You know, how can you teach something you can't see? You know, so how, you know, so one of the workshops I did with them was to, to create a year long school for them. So they have the full year of learning of, and they have relevance to that. So anyway, to go back to the question. Um, I had, after I left Hawaii, I had a really great opportunity to take um, this work to a larger scale, to a whole tribal scale, which was 1.3 million acres and um, in Washington state and 12 bands of, of, of Indians and um, three different language groups. And um, they were having problems getting uh, timber force uh, harvested to generate money to uh, pay for government jobs, you know, so there, there was uh, the, the typical conflict about um, clear cutting and taking care of water and, you know, traditional values and things like that. And so it was creating quite an impasse in terms of getting things done. So I was hired there to um, make that all work. And um, one of the first things, well, one of uh, there's two events that happened that really were powerful. One is like within uh, a month of me getting there, I learned that they had a summer intern program. It was, it was for tribal, you know, high school tribal kids. And it was intended, it was, you know, seen as a babysitting program more than something of meaningful value. Um, but it was, you know, intended to give an exposure to, you know, natural resource programs. So I <laughs> ended up having to beg my 
uh, new supervisor in my new job to um, work with them for a little bit. And because I like working with young people and I believe it's important. And so um, he said it'd be a waste of my time because I had more important things to do. But I said, well, you know, please humor me. So he gave me two weeks. And um, so I I had these kids and um, the first part of the week I was talking about um, the importance of setting a vision and setting a vision that was holistic. So one that had, you know, what you wanted socially, what you wanted uh, culturally, you know, the quality of life you wanted, one that was economically sound, and then also one that was ecologically sound and, and healthy. And I talked about how important that was and then how that drives you towards creating that kind of a, a, a direction. And so by uh, Thursday of the first week, um, I, get, I sat the kids down and, and I said, there's five of them, uh, high school kids. And I said, uh, how do you feel about, you know, I said, how do you feel about the reservation? And they said, well, this is our home. We love this place. This is where we grow up. You know, this is, this is our people and whatnot. And I said, that's cool. I said, what's the future? How do you feel about the future? And they got really sad and they said, they don't feel there is a future for them, for their reservation. It was really sad, you know, because the land was deteriorating, the economics was bad. The, uh, there's a lot of poverty, the culture was going away. And I said, well, I said, your high school kids here, your tribal members, I said, what are you guys gonna do about it? And they looked at me and they said, what do you mean, we're kids, you know? And I said, you're, you're, you are tribal members and you, this is your land, this is your future. I said, what could you do as high school kids to make a difference? And they thought for a minute and I said, what if you create, do you think, I said, do you think the tribe's got a holistic vision? And they said, no, and because everybody's going off in different things, the little silos of everybody, foresters and business people and, you know, healthcare and, you know, all these, you know, uh, silos. And so I said, what if you created a holistic vision? And then if you can do that um, by Tuesday, the next week, which is my last week with them, I said, I'll get you in front of the elders and in the business, the decision makers and in the natural resource department managers. I'll get you in front of those three groups and you can present this vision that you came up with. And so I said, I'll, I'll tell you what, you come in tomorrow by, you know, you come in tomorrow, Friday and present to me a plan, a solid plan of how you're going to create this vision and I'll let you be done for the day. <laughs> well, they came in at eight and by nine o'clock, I had to let them go because they had a plan. It was fantastic. And I got chewed out for letting them go early, but, um, but you know, they accomplished the task. Well, anyway, by Tuesday afternoon, they had this beautiful vision put together. They had interviewed, they had made a list of a hundred of the leaders of the tribe, a cross section. They interviewed 85 of them and put together a, a one page vision for the future of the tribe that was holistic. And I got them in front of the elders and the elders started crying when they had the young people sharing this, this view, this, you know, it was really cool. And then I got them in front of the uh, business council and they kind of popped up with pride and said, look how smart our kids are. And I said, you can learn from them. And, uh, and then I got them from the natural resources. And then that became our vision for our department of how we were going to manage from that point forward, which influenced the way we managed one very significant place that happened that within our work, within two, within two years, we, we were able to, to resolve the conflicts in forest management and all the things we were doing and water and medicine plants and all that sort of thing 
that um, we we came up that we had a million dollar surplus in our budgeting figures um, that we there was a million dollars that we didn't need, you know, in our budgeting. And, uh, and we, you know, so basically we had 17 prior to, and we only needed 16. And because of that vision, the right thing to do was to give that million dollars back to the government, you know, back into the government system, the whole government system, not keep it in natural resources and squander it. And we were, you know, of course there's the fear that if we give it back to the government, they're going to, you know, back into the system, they're going to squander it. And it's like, well, that's not our job. Our job is to use the money right with what we can do. So we basically at that point, we're able to double our land treatment um, while uh, improving the environmental and cultural quality of what we're doing. And we cut a million dollars out of a $17 million budget. And because the right thing to do is to give that million dollars back into the system, even though we're doing twice the work, et cetera, it was, you know, it was those kids' vision that helped, you know, drive that decision-making, which changed the whole government after that. It was cool. But the other story, you know, I want to share with you real quick, too, that also happened at that same time working with the kids is my new approach to doing land management, what I was hired to do there when I was brand new, was to do things holistically. So my first watershed um, I had observed that um, I, I had observed when I was working in the um, uh, meetings that that almost all the technical people were were white. They had um, uh, training, you know, they had the education, uh, so it entitled them to be the planners, etc., by the policies and stuff. And I and then so they would sit at the the table. This predominantly white team. And then on the outside would be a few tribal members that would sit on the outside of this, of this meeting room on the, on the edge. And I observed that and I was going, wait a minute, this is kind of crazy. These guys are planning their land. You know, it's like, why are we not asking them what they want instead of, you know, what you guys think is supposed to be here, you know, from your university training. So my first watershed plan, I said, you know, we're going to do this different. You know, I had my two white team leaders. One was a forester. One was a biologist. I, I said, we're going to do this differently. And the first thing we're going to do differently is we're going to this watershed that we're going to be planning right now for the next year or so. We're going to um, go. We're going to take go out with the elders and we're going to let the elders talk about this watershed. And the two of you, the three of us are not going to talk. We're not going to say a word. We're going to listen. We're going to just listen. Let them do all the talking. And they're going to take us where they want to go and show us what they want to show us. And so we went out and we had this wonderful day driving with about 12 elders across the, the, the in a couple of vans. And, um, and there was a lot of tears. There was a lot of laughter, you know, stories and stuff about that watershed. And then at lunchtime, we were overlooking, it was a beautiful spring day. Um, we were overlooking the Columbia River in Washington State and um, having a picnic lunch. And after the lunch, I, I asked the elders, I said, I got a couple questions for you. I said, first of all, how do you feel the land is being managed right now? And it got really sad. And um, the elders have a responsibility, they call it seven generations. They have a responsibility to the future. And the way that they were seeing the land managed was it really made them really, really sad. You know, great sadness. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I can feel it right now as I'm telling you, you know, and uh, this is like 30 years ago. Anyway, um, 
And they described some of the things that really made them sad about how the land was being managed by this team of white people, by this white, this, 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 these university trained folks. And so I, I said, I said, well, let me ask you this, this watershed, we have a chance to do something different. Um, I said, what would you like this watershed to look like because of the management, because of what we do here? And they started describing what they would like to see. They'd like to see streams that stop flowing, start flowing again. They wanted to see their medicine plants come back in the forest. Um, the things that treat cancer and other things that they have that, are, that were gone. They wanted to see um, jobs. They wanted to see, you know, income being generated. They wanted to see, you know, the, the, for, the wildlife populations. They wanted to bring fire back in the way it used to be, you know, where you burn big blocks of land in the fall, not in the spring, you know, when it's, when it's wet, you know, you know, they wanted to do it the way they traditionally did it. And, um, and like how the lightning was, you know, at that time of the year. So um, when they finished speaking, they were pretty, you know, it made them feel good to talk about that. I asked them, I, I or I turned to my two um, planners and I told my two planners, I said, you just got your marching orders. That's what you're going to create out here is what they just told you they want to see. And I turned to the elders and I said, we're not going to do a thing out here until we make sure we got it right, that we did it the way you said you wanted. And my, my planners were like, you got to be kidding me. You know, we, you know, I went to forestry school to grow trees, not medicine plants and, and make water flow. And my, um, and the elders said, no government has ever come back and said, we're going to check with you. So anyway, it was a real hard year to for the planters to kind of put their head on differently to grow medicine plants in forests and get water to flow again. But we about a year later, we had it. We had a plan and we did what we said. We went back to the elders and we said, OK, here's what we thought we heard you say. Here's what we designed. How did we do? They started crying. It was really cool. And they they said, you know, this is what they want. And they said they've never been treated respectfully like this. Well, here's the thing. We went and implemented it. Well, first of all, the elders unanimously agreed to it. The community, then when we took it to them, of course, because the elders, the power, you know, when we took the community, they said the elders want it, we want it. And when we took it to the business council, they said, my God, if we're going to be in elections next year, we better approve this thing because everybody else wants it. So we did it. And um, a year, well, as we went through this, what, what, we, what the foresters in their best estimations hoped they could get, we exceeded it by 50%. Um, the road construction, which is pretty damaging for the land, and it costs a lot of money and it takes a lot of time. For this amount of timber harvest, they figured 21 miles of new road. Well, we actually ended up cutting more trees to do to get water, to get the medicine plants, to get those things. We cut about 50% more trees, and instead of 21 miles of new road for this, it was only seven miles of new road for this. So more land was, more forest was harvested and less roads were built, way less roads. Um, when we got down to it, the Forest Service lands across from us, which is federal government owned lands, uh, not tribal lands, um, right across the fence from us, they figured about $125 an acre for treatment. And typically it's up to around $300 an acre for treatment. Um, we budgeted $75 an acre doing it the elders way. And it ended up costing us $29 an acre to do it the elders way. So, I mean, our economics went way up. Um, 
the environment got way better and you know there was a sense of pride and well-being and my lessons and i was also at the same time invited to go to the longhouse to their traditional ceremonies and whatnot and i and i really appreciated that and not many you know white people i guess you know they get invited they often don't come because they got better things to do but that was my job was to to understand the people and understand their values as best as i could and when i went there one of the really cool powerful things that hit me was that when they prayed they prayed that the animals and plants our brothers and sisters you know they prayed for them like that like there are brothers and sisters that really hit me was to think about you know my brothers and sisters in the human side you know well thinking about the earth that way and that sort of reverence is something that i see missing in our in our science world we don't have that reverence for the earth and when we can do that then we can do what happened at the tribe with better financial conditions better ecological conditions better social conditions than what we're doing today we don't have to live with what we got we can be way better but it's going to require us all to work together and in my consensus work what i've learned is that there's brilliance when you bring diversity together the, you know all the voices not and not any dominant voice but all of us have something that's very important to contribute and that's just been if i can say one of the big things i've learned in life that's it's all of our voices are important in solving this diversity is richness and so yeah yeah Sorry about the long stories, but it was remarkable. Oh, no, 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 no. The, the reason I invited you was because I knew you were a storyteller. Yeah, thank you. And I just, I feel, um, I feel blessed, you know. Um, thank yeah. you so much for for bringing us on this little bit of a, of your life as, you know, in a tour. Um, I would like to to have a second conversation at some sure. point in the not too distant future. Um, but we are pretty close to out of time. Um, yeah. And there's one thing that you had said earlier, be, again, before we actually started the formal um, recording, that might be a good note to end on. And it had to do with waking up in the morning and yeah. and either destroying or, or fixing something. Could you maybe paraphrase yourself yeah. as, as, as kind of a way to wrap this up? Yeah. You know, the systems that are in place. Well, there's a great book by a guy named Robert Fritz, and it's called The Path of Least Resistance. And uh, um, my gosh, what a brilliant thought that, you know, he's talking about the structures that are in place. It's like a watershed. You know, you got this little watershed, you pour water here. It's the path of least resistance is down to the bottom, you know, gravity, etc. And so um, and and the same ideas affect our lives. You know, the, the structures in place like policies and culture and uh, belief systems, um, the family of, ori of uh, you know, of, what, of origin, um, all of these structures affect the outcomes that we get. And so if you want different outcomes, you've got to change those structures. You know, it's insanity, you know, to think the path of least resistance doesn't work. And so that's the thing is that when we wake up in the morning and roll out of bed and maybe get a cup of coffee or whatever, we go flick on the electricity, which comes has come in a lot of times from coal factories or, or you know whatever 
you know, fossil fuel stuff. So we flick it on, you know, and we're doing that. And then we buy it, you know, we use coffee that comes from some far away place in the world, you know, and it's probably not farmed really well, you know, and just the act of getting a cup of coffee in the morning is destroying the earth, you know, and we don't mean it, you know, we don't mean to do that, but it's just the way it is. And it's the same with the way we typically farm, et cetera, and ranch and whatnot, the structures that are in place are, are causing us to do damage to the earth. And what if we could change the structures, the, the systemic change? What if we could change the structures so that when you woke up in the morning, the earth was actually getting better, you know, as a result of the act of waking up and living, you know, and that's the kind of thing that I hope that we can work on. And, you know, I have to put a little plug in, um, you know, I, I thought the last four years in our country was going to be, um, you know, I was seeing a, quite a bit of backwardness and uh, I had a lot of, you know, concern about it. But I also thought about the image of the slingshot came to my mind that sometimes, you know, you, you pull back a little bit, you go backwards a little bit and put some tension on those bands and then you let go and all of a sudden that thing goes flying way out there, you know. And I was kind of seeing that maybe these four years was, was a slingshot piece. And I am really encouraged. Look what's happening with climate change, the initiatives that are happening, and looking at whole economy changes and decisions that are being made, you know, in the White House. It's not just money related, you know, but in the Office of Budget and Management, but there's a new rule that says it's got to be socially and ecologically sound too. What's the analysis of that? So so you know, there's a holistic sort of view that's shaping up. So I'm actually pretty darn encouraged with um, what I'm hearing and seeing right now. And, um, you know, we are in, you know, if I think, you know, Roosevelt had uh, the Dust Bowl or the Depression, you know, there was, there, you know, he had that. There was a pandemic 10 years, 15 years earlier. You know, we've got the pandemic, the Depression, you know, all these things, you know, race, you know racial issues, all this stuff is hitting us bam right now all of this so it's a really challenging place to be but i actually you know the climate stuff the species losses and stuff water issues but we have a we could be in a place where we could actually make some major positive movement forward and i'm kind of excited actually today about where we could be so yeah so let's make a world that when we wake up we've done good for all of us so yeah Thanks so much. That's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you. Um, and um, yeah, keep on doing what you do. Yeah, I can't stop. I just... <laughs> we, we all need all of us. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's been very, very inspiring for me as a, as a um, interviewer and a listener. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, so I appreciate thanks. the opportunity. Yep. Thanks Have again, a great yep. Okay, take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lettem. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. R-A-S-A dot A-G. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore 
H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.